HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and Three, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Zaz. How are you? I'm good. I'm pretty good. I'm uh, seven out of 10, I think. (laughs) I'm recovering from a little bit of a headache and uh, I feel in a fog, but I'm excited about this week's episode. It was a very special one because it was with a very, I mean, your best friend. Yes. And a family friend of ours. And probably one of the best human beings in the whole world. What a good... uh, Kathy, you can't see her, obviously, because this is a podcast, but Kathy is a little, tiny, cute person. She's small, and she's just... Full of aliveness and depth and fun and celebration. She's one of those people that as soon as you see her, whether or not you've known her for 30 years or you just met her, she has this beautiful, bubbly personality, but not bubbly like... You know, it's really genuine. It's really... Well, she engages people no matter where she is, no yeah. matter what she's doing, no matter how she feels. And she, she really cares. People. Yeah, she does. She asks questions and she cares yeah. about the answer. She doesn't yeah. mince words or make small talk. She's mm-hmm. a really authentic human being. Mm-hmm. Um, we love Kathy very much. And, and we actually think about her a lot in all our shows. You know, the things that she's taught us and the things that she represents ties into almost everything that we do. Yeah. I'm not saying this as a joke. I would actually contemplate getting a tattoo of her on my body somewhere. <laughs> That's so much. I just want like her vibe around me all the time. She's yeah. a really great person. So Kathy, we love you. And thank you so much for coming on Processing. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Kathy Bodily. 
Hi, Kathy Bodily. What's your middle name? I don't have a middle name. Oh my gosh, I was that's cheated. So I was cheated out of a middle name. Really? By whom? My mother. Why no middle name? Let's start there. Let's begin this podcast by asking the most important question. Why do you not have a middle name? Is it customary in Utah not to have a middle name? Why of five children did four of them get middle names? Oh my God. Why did, were many of them even called by their middle names? <laughs> and I just, you know, didn't get one. Uh, these was, questions and more will be answered on this week's episode of Processing. We're here with Kathy Bodily, a longtime family friend, but and so much more. Really a family member of Bobby's and I. Kathy, who are you? Who am I? I'm a, uh, I'm a transplant from Utah. Uh, I've lived in New York for 50 of my 70 years. I'm a, I'm a cook. I'm a professional griever. I'm a, um, a, a dog mother. I'm a good friend. An amazing friend. Mom, and you and Kathy are best friends, sister, soulmates, in friendship. Tell us about how, how'd you guys meet? Mom, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, we go, we go back a quarter of a century or more, and Kathy will tell you more about it later, but she and her husband, Michael, owned an amazing music um, theater in Huntington, New York, and that's where I first met her, and that's where I first began to recognize her strength and her power and her grace and her um, depth. And she became my friend and introduced me. We call her, her and Michael were our fairy godmother and fairy godfather because they introduced me to my wonderful husband. And that was 25 years ago. And Kathy is also, as you said before, a friend in life. And we go through transitions together. We go through all the ups and downs and all the things that happen and we support each other. And I've been there for her through her many losses and gains and she's been there for me. So I have a different version of that, <laughs> of that story. Kathy's like, I hate this bitch. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I love, I love this bitch. <laughs> this bitch love you too, and so do I. But uh, I was building uh, a deck around my house uh, t- more, than 25, more than 25 years ago at this point. Uh, I had this carpenter, this seven-foot Norwegian crazy guy Ooh. and he and I were uh, working together I'm I'm short so I did the sh- the the stuff on the bottom and he did the stuff on the top and uh, one day we were uh, we were working and uh, two women are walking up my uh, I live on top of a high hill and there are these two women who are walking up the hill and Bruce big Bruce said to me do you know Bobby and I said, no, I, I know who she is uh, because she had a catering company in town and I never had the opportunity to use her because we just didn't, I cooked yeah, and I worked. Right. So he said to me, you should pay attention because you two could be best friends. <gasps> Wow. There a it was. Friend hookup. Yeah. 
That's amazing. A real friend hookup. Yeah, a real friend hookup. That's amazing. I've noticed recently, I have a friend, Janet, who I met in the same way that I think people meet spouses or boyfriends or dates or whatever. And I had never really experienced that with a platonic friend before or female friend. Um, and we met and we fell in friend love similarly. And then we just were like, oh, we're dating now as friends. And yeah, yeah sometimes <laughs> it just happens. You're just drawn to someone like that. And it's, it's really similar to falling in love. I have another friend who... Uh, she and I have wonderful adventures together, and we sometimes wish that we could be more than, you know, girlfriends. Yeah, I know uh, the feeling. Be- because, you know, it would solve a lot of Saturday night dates. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kathy, I want to hear a little bit about how it was for you growing up. So you mentioned you're from Utah. Uh, big family. Big family. There were five kids. Um, two two different families. There are three of us who were very close together. Um, My father abandoned us when I was seven, and my mother was seven months pregnant. And uh, we moved in with my grandparents, who were amazing, just amazing. Mm. And then after about five years, my mother remarried and uh, had another family, a brother and a sister, who were... uh, truly my favorite siblings wow so uh, we were this big crazy family that uh my stepdad my dad uh was in the air force and uh we lived seven people on one military family at one military man's uh salary oh my gosh so there so everything was scaled to that there were no music lessons or fancy vacations mm-hmm. or summer camp. Yeah. Uh, but life was really rich and delicious. Wow. So, Kathy, what were some of the food traditions that you had growing up in Utah? Well, uh, my grandmother uh, is was from Holland, and she did traditional, fabulous comfort food, and I learned to cook from her. My mother was a terrible cook. <laughs> she was a wonderful woman. She was witty. She was cute. She was funny, uh, but she was not a cook. She didn't like cooking. So, what kind of terrible things did she make? Do you remember any of the like the biggest failures? Well, recently, uh, I was celebrating. I, I, my sister still lives in Utah. I'm in New York. Uh, it was the anniversary of my mother's death. Yeah. She died on Mother's Day, and. Uh, I made for myself this dinner to remind myself of my mom. So I set the table for myself outside and with pictures of my family and candles. And uh, I called my sister and she said, I said, I'm having a dinner, uh, a mom dinner. And there's a big silence on the phone. And she said to me, what do you mean a mom dinner? And I said, well, I'm making something that mom used to make. There's another silence. And she said, mom was... Mom was a terrible cook, a terrible cook. I said, yeah, I know. She said, well, what do you have? I said, well, I have fried chicken and potato salad. And she said, mom's potato salad? And I said, well, kind of. She said, do you remember mom's potato salad? I said, yeah. She said, tell me about it. I said, well, it was badly boiled uh, potato 
pieces of potatoes, some too big, some too small. (laughs) So some were still raw and some were overcooked and mushy. And raw onions and mayonnaise. And Mm. she said, and you made that? I said, well, I changed it up a little. (laughs) She said to me, so what did you do? I said, well, I added uh, carrots and uh, little baby uh, bell peppers. Uh I added uh, celery and celery seed. Uh, I have some uh, parsley, egg, bacon. (laughs) Uh, uh, I uh, I sautéed the onions so that they're... uh, And there's like a silence, and she said to me, so what about it makes it mom's potato salad? (laughs) I said, well, it's potato salad. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's amazing. So when you think about the foods of your childhood, being that you're from a family, you're saying that was pretty forced to be pretty minimalist because of your, because of the income and the large family. What are some of the memories that come up, either specific foods or just the attitude surrounding food? Was it very special? You, you mentioned that it seems that despite the fact that you guys didn't have a lot of money, that life was rich. Did that reflect in the, in the eating habits of the family and in the cuisine? Did you have celebrations together or... Oh, we, we celebrated well. And my grandmother always, you know, orchestrated things. And uh, we sat around her table to, for the big celebrations. Mm. Uh, and she was, a t- uh, she was what we called the benevolent dictator. She actually had three yardsticks, three pieces of wood that measured 36 inches each that were laminated together, and she could what she called pop everyone at the table if you misbehaved, <laughs> including as my mother was dating, she would pop my mother's boyfriend. She would just, you know, hit you with this stick. <laughs> Perfect. You, so there was it, abuse. Uh, uh, Loving. It was never abuse. No, I'm just it was, uh, it was this uh, uh, amazing control. Control, yeah. And we were wild. Yeah. We were a wild, crazy, out of control family. That's a big family. So yeah. how would you celebrate birthdays or holidays or what are some memories you have? Well, everybody got to have their own, they got to choose what their birthday dinner was. And uh, it was always sort of a bone of contention because my mom never really wanted to cook. So uh, two of my brothers would always ask for the special hot dogs. And they were uh, just a regular hot dog that she would slice open and put mashed potatoes in, wow. and then a piece of cheese over the top and melt it. They were amazing. No, <laughs> no, I love it. I think it's. I think it is amazing because it's one of those things. Like, I always actually think that food. I was thinking about this the other day in terms of my own cooking and and how does it compare to other people who are good cooks. And I was like, it really is so subjective and there really is no real good and bad in life of anything. So it is amazing because it's really just about a texture and a temperature and a level of salt and, and a level it makes of nostalgia. You feel. Right. And how it makes you feel. But they were always too salty. They were always <laughs> too greasy. There was, a, a, I always asked for shrimp cocktail. We were Ooh. in Utah. There were no, Fairy. you know, you're not eating shrimp. They weren't like... You know, so flying was it, was it shrimp a challenge in. To, of course, it did was. Did you ever get it? Oh, well, what I would what I would wind up getting was uh, shrimp in a can. Oh, uh, with yeah. uh, with tomato, uh, with like a tomato 
juice that my grandmother would make and, and sort of can up. And then little slices of celery and onions, and okay. we would, she would serve that in little cocktail glasses. Special cocktail glasses. That's adorable. Yeah. I love that rendition. I remember growing up, there used to be a thing you can get in the refrigerator saucy section. Saucy Susan. Is that was called? The Saucy Susan? Mm-hmm. Wow, how sexy. Um, it was like a little jar that yes. had baby, like basically plankton in it, and uh, uh, yes. a lot of cocktail sauce. But yeah. I loved it, and I would still probably mess with it now. Yeah, were it here. there was a little bit of horseradish. Uh, but it was my grandma's doing, not my mom's. Yeah. Uh, and I would always ask for chocolate souffle. And my mother would just, uh, uh, every time I ever said it, she would get this look on her face that was like, don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> you are would not- she make it? No, my mother okay. didn't. My mother right. just didn't really. Right. But I learned to make it at my, you know, with my grandma. Yeah. Uh, in that five-year period between you know between the time I was seven and like 13 when my mom got me remarried okay so then how do you get from let's fast forward a little bit in the timeline of your life how do you get from Utah to New York well because my dad was was military we would sometimes travel around with Mm -hmm. him uh so uh, at one point we went to Texas uh he got transferred to Texas Texas. My mother and my three youngest siblings went. My brother was still in high school and wanted to finish high school. So uh, I stayed behind in Utah and uh, with my brother so that he could finish high school. And my grandparents had a number of houses and put us in an apartment in one of the houses. Uh, And they were going to watch over us in a loose kind of a way. (laughs) Um, and one day my mom called and she said, I need help. I need help with the kids. One of you has to come. So my brother had just graduated and, uh, he and I both had these cool cars and we decided that we would race our cars and whoever won got to stay in Utah and whoever lost had to go become the babysitter and cook for the family. Right. And... I lost. Oh, wow. So that led you to Texas? uh, That brought me to Texas. Mm -hmm. When? Wow. For a short period. How'd you come to New York? Well, uh, I I was so morose in Texas. I was just miserable. And I didn't leave the house for like a very long time. It was a military base, and I was like, you know, young. And uh, every time I would leave... Uh, the guys would just gawk at me and I was uncomfortable. Mm, So I just stayed in the house. And one day my mother said to me, you have to leave. You have to get out of this house. I don't care where you go, but just, uh, you know, do not come home until midnight. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so I went to the commissary, sort of like a little cafe-ish, you know, where they, they... there was a place where you they you could buy toiletries and, and then there was this little ca- coffee shop and i just sat down with a book and uh at one point this guy came over to me and said my friends just bet me that i wouldn't come over here and talk to you so even if you don't want to talk to me could you just you know act like it's yeah. okay and i wound up 
getting engaged and almost marrying him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So he lived in Oceanside, Long Island. Okay. And at one point, he, you know, he was uh, leaving the military, and he said, come and visit me. And I came to New York for a Fourth of July weekend uh, to, just to visit. I went home. I, uh, uh, I was working for a defense firm as a, a receptionist, uh-huh. and uh, I quit my job there. And I got a job at Sears, Sears wow. Roebuck, uh, because they uh, said that uh, they would transfer me after three months. So I worked for Sears for three months, and then I got them to transfer me to Rockville Center. Wow! So I could be with uh, with this with this man. Wow! Which didn't work out. So you get to New York, and then you're, the next real big chapter of your journey begins. And we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to delve into how the rest of the story unfolds. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. And we're back. So we're talking again with our good family friend and lover of food and cook and just life liver and survivor of a lot of different kind of things, pain, grief, and loss, uh, Kathy Bodily. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. You too. Um, so you end up in New York and you, oh, what I want to fast forward a little bit to your opening of the IMAC theater, which was a very influential place for music. Uh, what year did IMAC open? Uh, in 1973, uh, we formed the organization, uh, but it was very different in those days. Right. It was, uh, it was not a music organization it was uh, a video art uh, production facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York State put together uh, the most advanced media uh, program in the country. Wow. And they, uh, they funded 13 organizations around the state, each one of them with a different mission. Amazing. Uh, so there was... Uh, in, Bing- in Binghamton, there was a place that did electronic art. In Manhattan, there was a place that did uh, equipment, loans. Uh, uh, we had the first non-production, uh, I'm sorry, non-commercial color video production facility and in the state. And we means you and Michael. Michael and I, my, my longtime mate. And you lover. and Michael worked together for how long total? 30 six years that's a lifetime that's a lot uh, without a doubt yeah and was he a lover of food he was the he was the the best food mate we started our relationship as a cooking contest really I won. okay so in what way like what does that mean what did that look like for the two of you as a, as a pair 
uh, one day uh, he came to my apartment and uh, he saw a table that was set. I had set the table for dinner and it had, you know, a little tablecloth and there was a cloth napkin and a, a setting for one and uh, food cooking. And he said, oh, you're obviously having company, so <laughs> I'll leave. And I said, how many plates do you see? And he said, one, you're obviously feeding someone. And I said, no, that's, I'm having dinner. You yeah. know, you're welcome to stay. That's He's how you saying, set it up for yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, why would you not treat yourself as well as you would treat a guest? Well, I think that's an amazing thing because I think that people all approach food differently, whether it be in times of grief or just in terms of self-care. And you've always been someone who's been so inspirational in the way that you're able to just be so kind to yourself in that way. I agree. Uh, nobody loves you better than you love yourself. Well, that is an amazing thing because it's so easy to hate yourself and hate you more than anyone can possibly hate you. And I think so many people tend to do that. And I deeply admire about you probably the most that's true is that i've never met anyone who actually knows how to love themselves and i think as we unfold the rest of your story is probably a huge reason to why you're such a real a resilient person you know what uh, there are those times where you're like stuck in uh, grief and loss and uh insecurity i remember right after michael died i I'd, I'd been somewhere and I was, I, I was just, I missed him. I, I still miss him, but I missed him so badly that night that I stopped at the convenience store on the corner and I bought a container of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. It's too sweet. It's, yeah. you know, uh, it's, it's too everything. And I went home with it and I stopped in the kitchen and I picked up a spoon, and I took it to bed, and I thought to myself, gee, so this is my first menage a trois after Michael's death. <laughs> Me, Ben, and Jerry. And I ate the entire thing. And then it was so disgusting, and it was, and it was so much, and I knew that I would just go into a sugar coma, and I went in the bathroom, and I threw it up. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so... So in that moment, you know, it was the eating of it that uh, that at first soothes the monster a little yeah, bit, pushes down the feeling, and then there's the then there's the realization that you've done something disgusting, yeah. and then there's the self preservation that that makes you just heave it up. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's not a pretty story. But it, it, but it in is. essence, I never needed to do that yeah. again. It's extreme catharsis, right? Uh, yes. The, uh, the other thing is, Michael and I had a food thing that was really intense. Sometimes we would work very late at night. Uh, and for much of our lives, uh, we I would come home from work, and it could be Sometimes we would come home at 7 o'clock and we would make a big, giant dinner mm -hmm. and I would uh, cook it, eat it, clean it up and go back to work and work from 10 until 3. Wow. Uh, sometimes we wouldn't get home until 11. From concerts. Or 2 right. in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then we would start to cook and we would, you know, I, I would make 
Singapore noodles, uh, uh, grill grill meat, wow. uh, you know, make potato latkes, yeah. whatever. And sometimes we would already be in bed at night, and he would roll over and say, <laughs> could I have, you know, t- uh, a homemade pizza with da-da-da? And I would say, sure. So, Kathy, what made just... you say sure? What was the sure that in the middle when you were sleeping? <laughs> I, you know what? I, he was, he was easy to accommodate. Right. He was. He never ate uh, a meal that I ever made without making these uh, yummy sounds, like mm. food orgasm sounds. That's when exactly you know you have a, right. a really zesty person. I do. Uh, I yes. Do the same thing. And we competed over food all the time. What you do know. You, what do you mean uh, by that? Uh, the first I made him a veal piccata, and he said, "Oh." Uh, uh, come to my apartment, and I'll and I'll make dinner for you. And he made uh, shrimp marinara. That uh, he mm. didn't have a kitchen table, so we just sat uh, on the edge of his bed oh and God. ate uh, this shrimp marinara. That's an amazing memory. So just to take us back a little bit. So can you just tell everyone? So. Basically, this is the time in the podcast where we talk about the loss, right? We've heard about your experiences with, like, why you love food, why you love cooking. We now know that Michael has passed on. When did this happen? And, yeah. It's been almost a decade. Uh, he he had a series of little tiny health problems. None of them were an issue. But uh, we, had, uh, we had run this theater for a very long time. And there was this crazy roof uh, and ceiling situation where the landlord was responsible for maintaining the roof, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And we were responsible for everything on the, in- on the interior. So there would be big holes in the roof uh, where lots of plaster would fall. Right. And... Uh, it fell in lots of places on many occasions. And one time there was an artist who was on stage doing a sound check. And we had a backstage manager who controlled the backstage and called the shows and, you know, dealt with the, dealt with the artist and, you know, accommodating them. Right. And uh, in the middle of the sound check, he motioned to have her come to him. And she walked away from her post, which was a little podium, mm-hmm. and 90 pounds of plaster fell from the, the ceiling and smashed the podium to nothing. She'd have been killed if oh she was God. standing there. And I had just recently lost two brothers uh, within three weeks of one another, just months prior to that. Oh, Kathy. And so we knew... Michael and I, who he had one sister, but my brothers were his brothers too. Yeah. And so we knew what sudden loss, uh, sudden tragic death does to a family. And we realized that someday someone was going to die in this this, uh, amazingly magical place that we had built. That uh, we had found plaster in the seating areas so it might be an audience member Mm -hmm. uh we just had this situation where it could have been a crew member right 
uh, sometimes we would come in and there would be plaster that had fallen on the stage. So it could be an artist. Who's expendable? Who's expendable in, no in, the, in the scheme of things? Right. What a time in your life to have just lost. Your brothers, they were died suddenly or you, you anticipated their death? One brother, my most gregarious, uh, richest, happiest brother committed suicide mm. uh, out of the blue. When my mother told me about it, uh, I said, no, you have it wrong. It's yeah. my other brother who was always depressed and right. going to commit suicide all the time. <laughs> you know, a number of attempts and always talking about it. And I said, no, yeah. it wasn't Dawn. It was Brent. Yeah. She said, no, Dawn. So I went to tell Michael about it. And he said, you mean Brent? And I said, no, Dawn. Hmm. So that happened just before Christmas. And just after New Year's, my oldest brother, Ed, uh, who at Dawn's funeral complained that he had a little stiffness in his shoulder. Uh, he had just stopped smoking and he gained a huge amount of weight mm -hmm. and he died of a heart attack uh, at home with his two newly adopted special needs children. So... So our, it takes our breath away, and we, we know this story, but it still takes our breath yeah. away. So we realized at that point uh, that we had to leave this mm -hmm. business that we had nurtured for our whole lives. Right. It's it's one of those. I'm familiar slightly with that feeling of just losing my own business, which I didn't have even for a fraction of the amount of time that you had iMac, but. A feeling when you know that the thing you love is also insidious in some way and, and mm -hmm. killing you. Yes. And it's just such it a weird feeling. It was killing both of us, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, it, uh, uh, our lifestyle, uh, I weighed 50 pounds more than yeah. I weigh now. Yeah. Uh, I knew you always had so much was, tension and so much stress. Yeah. The yeah. stress was crazy. Just it, crazy. It changes, but I'm curious... Um, so with that, right, you're talking about how part of your relationship and your intimacy revolves around your mealtimes and how they were different, right? I think than just 6 p.m. is dinner. And I think that makes, how you're explaining it makes it sound exciting and sexy and cool. It was exciting and sexy, and it was, and it was the right thing for us at that time. Right. And then my, so where I'm going with this is then, also that big change that shift and when you lose something you give up a business and while it is relieving in some way and it does take your stress away in this way you really need it to I found personally I don't know if you felt this way although I'm sure you, you must have that is also such a change in identity and then also changing your routine of now you're not people who work till midnight and need to have a barbecue at 12 at, exactly right yeah. Well, he died just a few months after uh, the business closed. Right. After the dismantling so, of the business, you had to dismantle a huge theater, 600-person theater. Absolutely. Which was exhausting. Absolutely. And it took a long time. And, there, and it was enormously complicated. So in, in essence, we were still really doing that up until the time he died. Okay. And, uh, and our food routine hadn't really changed. There was no breakfast. It was coffee, marijuana yeah. for breakfast. Perfect. Uh, 
lunch around 3.30 that was sort of just your body screaming for food. Mm -hmm. And then you're not really hungry until 8 or 9. And then you, you know... By the time you make a three-course dinner, it's not Yes, and then you cook and eat until midnight. Yeah. And go to bed on a full stomach. So, so you're saying that in December, your one brother Don died. Yes. In January, Ed died. Ed died. The business was in June. Died that same in year? June. In June, and Michael died in October. And Michael died in October. So, can you tell and, us more about that? Kathy? And we I'm had clear. this, and we had this lovely golden retriever. She was, uh, uh, she was a, a, a giant personality. Michael had a huge personality. She had a huge personality. Yeah. They were both superstars. She was at the theater for every show. Every it, it, yes. As a matter of fact, she had had uh, she had hip dysplasia, and she had had cancer for three years. Mm. And at the end of her life, and at the end of IMAX's life, we had an employee who every day when we left for work, we would call and let him know that we were coming. The theater was upstairs. There were 44 stairs to get up. And uh, this employee, Mike Backhouse, uh, would uh, come and meet us and pick up this 106-pound dog and carry her up the stairs. Uh, And at night, when we were ready to leave, he was off at 6 if we left at... Seven. If we left at ten, if we left at midnight, we would call him, and he would come, and he would carry her down the stairs. Now, people love animals. That's indisputable. But there's only one reason that someone would really do that, and it's because their owners are supremely special. And to be able to have an employee that's willing to carry your dog up and down the stairs every day really speaks to who you are as a person. Uh, it, I knew Michael was. Uh, yes. Kathy and Michael's employees were their kids. They were our kids. And and uh, so after Michael died, uh, we had this giant shiva. And uh, many of the kids who worked for us were late teens, early 20s. They'd never seen death before, let yeah. alone someone who was crazy-ass vital, yeah. like Michael was, who just sort of like dropped and was gone in two days and they all came and I sent everybody to Michael's closet to take uh, his clothes with them and people left with you know uh, leather coats Michael loved clothing yeah he was uh, a they snappy left, dresser he was a snappy yeah. dresser and, and very uh, tall so I can imagine some of those clothes might have not fit perfectly <laughs> uh, you know what uh, that's that's oh, why God great. invented the tailor exactly <laughs> but one of our kids came downstairs and he had two really lovely pairs of shoes and he uh, came to me and he held the shoes up and he said these fit me and someday I hope to grow into the, the man that he was and I thought that was so lovely and another friend who uh, wanted to know which of Michael's shirts w- would he wear to funding meetings when he went uh, to get grants, and he took he took a, all those shirts, and at one point afterwards said, "Do you have any more of those shirts, that Michael?" You <laughs> <laughs> so Kathy, you know, we were there with you during that time, and there were hundreds of people who loved you and Michael so much and continued yes. to love you and Michael so much. And they all came to the house. 
So when you say Shiva, what was that like? I mean, did people bring food? You know, what did everybody do? You know, I just uh, had my 60th birthday. And uh, prior, uh, prior to my birthday, uh, my favorite brother, Don, and I, he was the first to go. And we were talking about, uh, he said, what do you want for your birthday? He and I were going to go, he, we're going to fly to Las Vegas uh, and see an ultimate fighting. Uh, I, I, I was. I really loved she ultimate doesn't. fighting. No, it's I did. great. I just wasn't. It's, I'm not laughing at the sport. I just wasn't expecting you to yeah, say that. It wasn't like we were going to a. You know, <laughs> you're gonna say. I don't want to fucking know. That's hilarious. So, uh, it, we were gonna do that for. Uh, we were gonna do that for my birthday, uh-huh. and he, uh, he, he kept saying uh, this bout that we were looking at was at the very end of December, like around New Year's. Yeah. And he kept sort of putting it, uh, putting off buying the tickets. Oh. And he said to me, well, if you could have anything for your birthday, what would you like? And because my family was big and loving, it was all in Utah, and I'm here and my world is here, yeah. I said to him, I would like my friends and my family in the same house for my birthday. Oh. And he said, that can never happen. What would you, you know, what else would you like? And that's when we came up with this Las Vegas yeah. thing. But I sort of got my wish because mm-hmm. Michael died the night before Halloween and my house was filled with my friends and my family. Yeah. My family came. My mother came for 33 of the longest days of my <laughs> life. Oh my God. She would. She would say these things. Uh, uh, my, one of my favorites was, the days are long, but the nights are longer. <laughs> 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 or, you know, you're a widow now. <laughs> like, thanks, cool. mom, you know. <laughs> that's yeah, comforting. That's true. I sure, I sure am. You know, one thing I remember about that day, those days, is that I know Zara was there. She came, and I remember, Zara, you made a soup. I did, yes. And I was curious what it was like for you to make that shiva soup because it was very special and it very was. memorable. I, and I still remember it. I'll make yeah. it again. You know what? I'll make it again for another Sweetheart, special occasion. I make it. Oh, per- <laughs> amazing. I'm sure you probably make it better than but me. But I guess my question is, you know, what was it like for you as somebody who cared so much about Michael and Kathy, and there you were, you wanted to do something? Well, I learned from you. And from dad, because both of you uh, were chefs and also just people who were perfectly imperfect and in some ways uh, tough and hard to understand, but in other ways perfectly easy to understand and taught me some of the best lessons I ever learned. expressed ourselves through food. Thank you. No, don't worry. Do you want to just answer this one? <laughs> this is what you get from a mother-daughter podcast. Little bits of bickering. Um, so anyway, back to me. Um, I What did I get from it? I learned a lot from you and dad about how to really uh, show my affection for people, uh, whether it be with food or just with a, just be there, right? And it's not always easy to be there. And it doesn't make people who are there better or worse. It's really hard. It's as hard as I think as pushing a boulder up a hill for some people and as easy as like lifting a feather for other people. And it's really just about the way 
maybe you were raised or what people told you to do. For me, it always felt effortless. Like if somebody needs you, you just are there. Right. But there are other things that other people can do so effortlessly that are impossible for me, like math. And I don't know. Um, so to answer your question, it didn't feel like a task. It just felt like second nature. You know, someone is, is hurting and this is what I know how to do. And if you go to someone's house and someone's died and there are people there, you bring something that will make them feel good and you cook with love and you think about the thing that will make them feel the best. And it's not a big deal, even though it is such a big deal in a way. I know what it feels like for me is I feel like I, I have to do something. I'm driven inside. I care so much and so deeply. And like you said, I don't do other things, but I do that. Right. And yes. it's something you I do can well. do. You do it really well. I'm, I want to feel really compelled to ask this question. Um, and it's kind of just simple, but how, how, how does one get through this oh, kind definitely. of thing at all? And then from there beyond just how do you pick yourself out of bed in the morning? How do you, how do you relate through this thing that you love? And that's like that you need and people are bringing to you all the time and, how first of all the first part of this question is just how do you go on with that much loss how did you do it well in a certain sense you have two choices either you could let their death be your emotional death or you could let their death so, so every person has this duality and there are wonderful things about them, and there are things that are difficult. I was once with a friend of mine, and she had just lost her husband, and we were out eating, and she had a fork full of food, and it was halfway to her mouth, and she got this stricken look on her face, and she said to me, I know this is going to sound terrible to you, but I never have to have that same stupid argument with Bob ever again. Hmm. And I got it, you know? Yeah. Uh, early in a relationship, we learn to do this dance, and it doesn't really seem to change. And when people, you know, people would look at Michael and I, and we were together 24-7 in a stressful business, and we got along really well. And people would say, do you ever fight? And I would say to them, Michael and I are together for 36 years, and we've only had one argument. But we've had it hundreds of thousands of times. <laughs> what was it about? <laughs> uh, it, it was always about uh, employees and, the, and the, uh, uh, the fact that I was the easy cop and he was wow. not. Okay. He Is would it- hold them to a standard. I will... Uh, I knew that uh, we had one person who worked for us. Uh, she was my assistant for ten years. She did a lot of she did a lot of jobs in this yeah. organization. He must have fired her ten times. <laughs> she would just, uh, you know, she would do something big or little that he didn't like. He would pull her into his office. He would like. Uh, close the door. You could hear them screaming at one another. He would buzz me on the intercom. He would, uh, I would come into the office and he would say, she's out of here. She's just out of here. But you know, my guess is that it's underlying themes, right? It's usually in a relationship, there's 
basic underlying themes, and yes. it's not even about the specific thing. It's, it's not about the about specific control thing. or history or history that you bring to the relationship. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I knew that if she left, who was going to do her job? That would be me. Right. You know, I already did uh, a, a large portion. He, someone once said uh, about the two of us. But to finish that, yes, she would just go back to her desk and act as if it never happened. Right. And then he would say to me, uh, why do you side with her? Right. Now, if I'd have said, oh, she's just an idiot, she should be out of here, he would say, why are you placating me? And if I would say, <laughs> well, you know, maybe this happened, he would say, why are you on her side? <laughs> so it was, and it was the same argument, no matter who right. we were, a power struggle. you know, right. arguing about, Kathy, no matter what the situation I was. I want to comment on something. You know, you've told us your story, you've shared it with our audience. You didn't just have loss, you had trauma. To have oh, lost three brothers, yes. your business, yes. your husband, and you didn't really even say how Cleo died. It was almost out of a fable the way she died. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's part of the trauma. It's So she's an 11-year-old, 106-pound golden retriever, big, fat. She'd had cancer for three years. I'd been uh, working with a holistic vet who was coming to the house. I would feed him and get him drunk and stoned, <laughs> and he would... Uh, he and Michael would pick her up and put her onto our uh, table in the in the kitchen, and the doctor would work on her. Yeah. And um, she was okay enough. She would have she would have passed relatively soon. I brought her to the funeral to Michael's funeral and to the cemetery. And Sue, the the girl who had been fired ten times, fucking Sue, uh, had had uh, she was taking care of Cleo. Yeah. And at one point, I asked her, would she just please? It was the end of the service. Would she please take Cleo home? Yeah. Uh, we lived just a few blocks from the cemetery, so she was going to walk her home. And um, they stepped on a wasp nest that was in the ground on the cemetery at the cemetery and both of them were stung many times and Cleo died of anaphylaxis the next morning so this is trauma so if you look at the history of your loss and trauma do you see it as two different things do you see the grief part which evolves in a natural way there's no cure for grief there's no fix for grief and then the trauma which startled your life it turned your world inside uh, out I, at first uh losing all that in such a short time first up if we just if we just bring it down to michael and cleo yeah uh the idea that i lost this that I lost my business, my mate, and my dog in, you know, not very long, uh, seemed like the cruelest fate to me. Yes. And although you wallow in that loss uh, for a certain period of time, there were 
uh, there were angels around me. The night, uh, the night before Michael died, I have a friend who was an emergency room physician, and he came to visit. Uh, Michael had had an event and uh, lived for two days, and uh, it, uh, the night that he died, uh, this friend had come to visit, and I walked he, him to the elevator, and I said, you know, do you think he's going to be all right? Do you think uh, he's going to live? Uh, do you think he's going to die? And he said, no, I'm afraid he might live. And I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? He said the damage to his body is so overwhelming that if he lives, he, he's not going to be who he was. It'll ruin both of you. Wow. So so that so that gives you a kind of perspective. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, I'm kind of trying to, to put the pieces together when from my earlier question, how do you do it, right? How do you go on and how does everything play a role? So I have a theory and I'd like to ask you if, if there's any weight to it. Yeah. That you mentioned how your family uh, existed on a very tight budget and also how you guys would celebrate in these like fantastic ways of everyone getting to pick their own birthday dinner and that it always felt special and rich. Do you think that there's anything to that, ha- that juxtaposition having grown up with not having, like, with wanting for a lot and also kind of not wanting for anything? Do you think that set you up to be in the position where you could weather this type of emotional turmoil? Here's what I think. I was born with a happy soul. Uh, I, uh, because we didn't even have a lot of lemons, I could, uh, uh, I could make really delicious lemonade out of not much. Hmm. And I turned things around in my head, uh, to, uh, it, uh, to accommodate those losses. I, I, I came to believe that, uh, Michael took Cleo, this beautiful dog, to heaven with him so he could find a better angel, somebody who would be the celestial uh, equivalent of me, his That's perfect mate. beautiful image. Uh, I, uh, I believe that I was more resilient and flexible uh, in, uh, in who I was. Uh, than he uh, that I would do better as a as the one left behind. Right, and I guess that is typically. I mean, someone typically dies before sure. the other mate, and I do think you're extremely resilient. And I, I'm constantly when I find myself in times of real tumult, I often think about your strength, and it is truly an inspiration to me. And it's gotten me through a lot of the worst times in my life, knowing. And I think that's the whole reason for this show, really, right? Mm-hmm. Is because life is bitter. Like, it's very bitter, and it's also very sweet. And just remembering that there are people out there that can do it. You can do if you want to, right? Or if you can't. If- uh, you know what? Uh, uh, it, we owe it. Uh, we owe it to the people that we loved and lost. We owe it to ourselves. And we owe it to those around us to live the best life we possibly can. Yeah. Kathy, you've taught me so much about how to view life and how to view loss and how to view friendship and love. And I tell you stories, n- not about you, but about things you've taught me many, many times to my clients. And one story that I love to tell is 
something you didn't add, I hope it's okay that you yourself have also experienced illness in your life. And there was a time when you had to take a medication that was tough, right? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. So um, I remember you telling me that you had to take this medication for two years. And the first time you took it, it was this thought, you know, this is, I'm taking poison right now. This is a heavy-duty chemo drug. And then you realized you had to turn it around and that you would say to the pill every morning you took it, thank you so much that you are here. Thank you so much that you exist. And that has helped me so much. I've passed that on to so many people, the way you view things, the yeah. way you turn it around. And, and I actually made that into a little prayer where I would put these pills in my hand. I actually took them for uh, uh, 10 years. Wow. And I would put them in my hand my uh, my oncologist's name was Michael Buckles, and he's an amazing, amazing man. So I would put these pills in my hands, and I would say, "Give me, uh, give me this day my daily dose." Yeah. And thank you to Michaels for <laughs> saving my life. Oh God. And I would take them, yeah. and I never. I had taken a number of other medications before these. Yeah. And uh, th there were some that made me very sick. Yeah. Very sick. And and I just decided that this was an experimental drug. I was taking it. It could, it could protect me if I allowed it to do its work. Right. So... What is what does eating turn into? What does food turn into in this time of of uh, just wildness in your life of emotional upheaval? How does food play into the picture? How does it change from your previous from intimacy in your relationship, really centering around food and it being such a big thing, to then being a one and also someone going through a lot of pain? Like how how did you deal with it with food? Well, first, I I really changed the way I ate. So now I get up in the morning and I eat. Uh, so I have breakfast and dinner and no lunch. Uh, I eat breakfast like 10. And I, I, I make it healthy. I do... And beautiful. A, a breakfast sandwich, salads, big mm. breakfast salads. Yum, I love that. Uh, I, do, uh, I make my own granola and nut mix with... Uh, with uh, vanilla paste and uh, oats and puffed rice. And Kathy goes all almonds. the way with everything she makes. Um, it, I, I eat lots of, I eat fruits and vegetables in the morning to sort of like set the tone for the day. I have, yeah. uh, I make dinner. I, I eat with friends probably half of the time. Okay. And I make fabulous dinners for myself. Is there anything that you feel that it's hard to eat that you that was something that you and Michael did together, or something, or or, or both that you like to make because it reminds you of your time together? Well, at the end of his life, uh, it, I was I was doing most of the cooking, and uh, uh, for dinner parties he would always want to have paella, <laughs> and. Uh, Although he wasn't really at that point cooking, he would micromanage the shit out of me <laughs> uh, about every single step of the way uh, on a dish that we had been making for decades, just decades. Yeah. And so I, I don't make paella 
for yeah. myself. Yeah. Why not? I mean, it's why, hard why not? To, uh, because I don't really want to think about that micromanagement. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that uh, like my friend who will never have that argument with Bob again. Yeah. I'll never have to hear in my head uh, that, you know, don't put the shrimp in like that. Do it this way. <laughs> so that's so, a food that's hard to make. Is there anything you can think of that you love to make because it reminds you of Michael? Well, I still make big Sunday breakfasts mm. for myself. Uh, I'll, I'll make uh, waffles. I'll make. Uh, uh, he loved, loved, loved uh, seafood omelets. <gasps> Ooh, so a I'll seafood a, omelet. What goes in there? Uh, crab. Sometimes, uh, sometimes if I have uh, lobster, I'll save Ooh, the little bits of lobster yum. and put uh, and shrimp and sometimes scallops and you know you just sauteed them together oh. with a little butter and garlic oh and God. white wine and oh, delicious. then make a an omelet and yeah. pop it in and he loved it with a little black caviar on the top oh my goodness so high society well no i don't go for the caviar because yeah you know what do you do with the rest that's absolutely true well that is actually a very interesting thing right so something that used to be a luxury right having a little bit of caviar after working really hard all week and what do you do with the rest and i know that not through losing someone through death but just in breakups and living with boyfriends and all of a sudden you're cooking and it's a big part of your life and then you're heartbroken you're alone they move out and it's like wow i okay well there's things not that you know oh god i can't have caviar anymore that's the end of the world but it is in a way Uh, it's hard uh uh the once you could get past the point of it hurting so badly then then it's just sweet memory right that's the concept of bittersweet if we keep avoiding the bitter we never get to the sweet Exactly right. Exactly right. So he loved veal valdostano. Oh, what is that? Uh, we used to go to this restaurant, and when we walked in, our waiter, our regular waiter, yeah. uh, would uh, wave to us and trot off to the kitchen so that they would start Michael's veal valdostano. Oh, my God. What is it? Uh, it's, it's a big veal chop that you make a pocket in, Ooh. And you fill it with uh, fontina cheese and a little piece of ham, and mm. uh, they put in a little bit of sautéed spinach, and then you uh, pound the veal chop and bread it. it you know, put it in an egg wash and bread it and oh my God. fry it. Wow. And it's, you know, so it's ooey and gooey and melty on the inside, and it's got that saltiness and... Uh, he was crazy about it. Can you picture it now? Can you picture him eating it? I can't. As a matter of fact, the night, uh, the night he died, uh, he hadn't eaten for the whole time he was in the hospital. And the nurse, the night nurse, said to me, I want you to go home. It was a little before midnight. I want you to go home, and uh, I want you to make his favorite dinner. And uh, just before he had this incident that killed him, he had gone grocery shopping, and he spent like $300 in the grocery store 
uh, and there was every kind of food that you could <laughs> imagine, including two beautiful veal chops. And um, I was going to show up at the hospital the following morning at 8 o'clock with veal Voltistano for him. And my oncologist stopped in to visit him about one o'clock in the morning when he was finishing his rounds at the hospital and stayed with him until four and he died at five. Yeah. So I never got to do that last veal Voltistano for him. Yeah. But every time I see a veal chop, I just melt. It's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, amazingly and um, a few years ago Michael Buckholtz and his wife took me out for dinner uh, which is remarkable yeah. and we went to this little bistro and they had it and so did I wow that's amazing so beautiful story it's a beautiful yeah. story it's beautiful yeah well I guess my last question is if Michael and you could have shared one last meal, I'm not sure, maybe it would be Vail Valdostano or if there's anything else or remaking the Bahia without yelling or being micromanaged, what would be what would be the last meal? If you could do one, one more meal together, what would it be? Uh, that brings on a flood. Uh, but I think if I could do it just one more time, I would have him make for me uh, the, the dish that just won my heart. He tried to make a curried chicken with rice. Uh, the chicken wasn't cooked all the way. The rice was hard in the middle. Uh, the curry was way too intense. Uh, and it was perfect oh. <laughs> it was perfect <laughs> it sounds amazing wow and a table set for two yes well you a are a table set for two you're an inspiration you're a life liver and you're a beautiful person and a wonderful cook and I love you very much I'm so grateful that you came and we are so fortunate to have you in our lives to, to and teach you. us and uh, I'm sitting across from two of the best cooks and the most voracious foodies. Yeah, we like to eat with our hands. That's for that's for sure. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today on Processing, and you're an amazing guest. And I think that I hope I hope and I know that people who listen to this, I really hope that they were inspired to. It's really really hard that time when you're in grief. It can be so hard to care for yourself and to know how to just not sink. And I think eating is one of the first things that we can do to really abuse ourselves. It's I nourishment. Yeah. I personally do it. Like, yeah. and I, I hope that people can be inspired by how you are able to still have self care. And, uh, and this message is to continue to nourish ourselves oh, without a when doubt. we can and ask yeah. others to help us no matter what's happening. And you never, ever, ever need to stoop to craft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Unless it brings joy <laughs> to your heart, which for some people might be their safe place, but uh, I know what it, you mean. It might, 
but uh, <laughs> figure out how to make it. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny you should say that because I just uh, got this beautiful natural powdered cheddar cheese. And it's uh, colored with Arcana, I guess. So it's totally natural, but it's still orange. And it's exactly what you would want. Um, it's called like Anthony's Powdered Cheddar. Um, Jesse, the other night, I got him a bunch. And he was really stoned and hungry. And he just put the powdered cheese on a dry rice cake. And I, <laughs> I said, that's the driest thing. What is that, like a Cheeto? <laughs> Did it leave like a mark around his neck? Oh, yeah. So that I was like, well, maybe tomorrow you should try putting a little water on it or something to make it a little bit better. So he tried putting water on it. And I think he said that was the worst. This is a 39-year-old man, by the way. But well, wonderful human being. I think it's a funny story. I think we should go try to find some Ville Valdestino. Ville Valdestino, Bobby. Valdestino. <laughs> Ville D'Agostino. Okay, Kathy, you're the best. Love you so much. Love you. Love you too. Love you, Bobby. Hey, Mom, that was an amazing episode with Kathy. She is incredible. You guys have been friends for so long, huh? Kathy's an amazing human being who I admire so much. I love when she said that she was born happy. Mm-hmm. I think that some yes. people are, and some people are born sad. That's I think true. I'm somewhere in the middle. Where were you? Where are you born? I think somewhere in the middle yeah. as well. Yep. So she mentioned first in the episode about making her mom's kind of yucky pota- potato salad. And yes, that was a great story. Gussing it up, and I, I really loved it. And uh, a little bit about potato salad. It was first introduced to Europe from the New World by Spanish explorers in the 16th century. The early potato salads were made by boiling potatoes in wine and a mixture of vinegar <gasps> and spices. Oh. And not until, like, much later did they and become wine? main easy. Yeah, like white you wine? boil them in wine. <gasps> Doesn't that sound fabulous? Yes, let's try it. We should try that, right? Yeah. Like a white wine. So good. Ooh. We also talked about um, Saucy Susan um, yes. shrimp cocktail, yes. but you're combining two things. <sighs> so the shrimp cocktail is also, uh, the jarred shrimp cocktails are from a brand called Saucy, S-A-U-S-E-A. Ooh. Okay. Saucy shrimp cocktail. And then Saucy Susan is a brand of different jams, preserves, sweet and sour sauce, sweet and sour sauce ah, ham right. glaze, but you were really close. Yeah. She talks about Cherry Garcia ice cream and eating a whole pint of it. And it really reminded me, we didn't mention in the episode, but of that movie that we both love, Ghost Story, with Rooney Mara oh. and Casey Affleck, where yes. she, where he, oh, Casey Affleck, yeah. Yes. And she, he dies and she eats that whole pie in that pie. one scene. It's about a 15 minute piece. It is. She just eats the pie in pain. The really. Most, one of the most beautiful pieces. It's really amazing. Pain. If you like, if you liked this episode and you were intrigued by that story, talk about food and grief that's one of the most quintessential scenes about food and grief and it really reminded me of when Kathy was talking about Cherry Garcia ice cream I loved how she said she had her first three way with Ben and Jerry (laughs) she's really funny Um, she talked about shrimp marinara which was the first thing that Michael ever made for her which I love and is absolutely delicious and simple to prepare at home it's just really shrimp and a marinara sauce and you can serve it over some pasta Mm -hmm. lemon wedge she talked about paella which if anyone doesn't know is a famous Spanish seafood and rice dish where you try to get the bottom of the rice crunchy and crispy. And then this episode is going to be named Veal Valdestano. And I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, background on what that is. So it's named 
basically there's a region in northern Italy, as some might know, called the Valdosta. Mm-hmm. And it's very close. Uh, it's very, very, very north. And they make a lot of heavier foods up there. You don't see like tomato sauces or anything that like that. Um, northern Italian. Northern cooking. Italian cooking. And that's where they, you know, veal valdostano comes from. And so it's a thick veal chop stuffed with fontina, cheese, prosciutto, and parsley. Then it's seared and they make a sauce of artichokes and like a lemon butter sh- uh, sherry sauce. Oh, sherry. And then it's topped with mozzarella cheese and Ooh. baked. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How decadent. Am I right? Yes, it sounds amazing. Really? We need to get on to making I know you don't really eat veal. I saw a recipe for chicken valdostano. Okay. Wouldn't that be delicious? All right, we got to get on that. Although you can't really eat dairy anymore, so we'll have to do it. We're going to do it? Yeah. You can take a lactate? You bet. All right, thanks to Kathy. This was a really great episode. And um, I love you. Thank you, Kathy, our soul sister. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. so much for joining us for processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.